man had given us more belief in our treasure than we could have ever created for ourselves. Now we were sure that the treasure existed, and now we could find it for ourselves. And so we set out. We were not exactly the sort of group you would expect to find any treasure at all. My older sister Carmel, who was thirteen, my eight-year-old brother Vern, a twelve-year-old neighbor girl named Rebecca, and I, twelve years old, made up the crew. But we were inventive. We had noticed in our searchings with the old man a peculiar group of large, smooth stones in the middle of a small stand of trees. In that circle of trees was a large stone the size of a man's body, set below a single round stone, two straight long stones extending down from the body stone, and one more long stone extending out from the others. Together, the five stones created the perfect image of a man lying down, torso, head, legs, and one arm pointing very clearly in one direction. Those stones, we thought, were the clue. Their arrangement must give us a clear direction to the treasure. If you plotted a line from the extended arm of the stone man, it pointed directly toward the center of three lone trees that stood in the shape of a triangle about twenty feet from the stone figure. That point, we reasoned, in the exact center of those three trees must be where the treasure was buried. At this time in my life, as adventurous as my friends and I were, we had one mighty adversary. Once we had found the spot where we knew the treasure must be, we had to overcome only one obstacle, my father. He had decreed that none of us, for any reason, could play on the lot by the old house. Unfortunately, the area our father had placed off-limits was the precise location of our buried treasure. If we were to dig it up and live a life of riches, which, as young folks, we totally believed we would, not only would we have to disobey a direct order from our father, we would also have to avoid getting caught digging a large hole on the property where we were not supposed to be in the first place. Our solution, as it so often was in cases like that, was to do it anyway. One of us would stand guard, a lookout in the event the evil pirate, father, showed up unexpectedly, and the rest of us would take turns digging. Looking back, I don't think that any of us really expected to find anything, but we wanted to believe. That is how young minds work. We started early the next Saturday morning. We marked the spot, and we dug. I turned the first spade, and then with each shovelful began to dig with an increasing sense of urgency. What if, I thought, someone, especially our father, found out what we were doing? He wouldn't understand. And so we dug, and the first few shovelfuls soon turned into a clearly defined excavation, three feet across and five feet in length. The ground under the trees was rocky, and we had to stop often to pull the larger rocks out of the way. At a depth of about three feet, we ran into a large root from one of the trees, and after some coaxing, we convinced Rebecca to run home and get an axe to cut the root. If any of the rest of us went home, it might tip someone off and at the time, little Rebecca was the best candidate for the least notice. It was almost noon when I found myself standing in a hole four feet deep in the ground, digging out shovelfuls of black soil, when the shovel struck something hard. It wasn't a rock, and it wasn't a root. I started to dig faster, and every shovelful I threw out of the hole confirmed the reality of my wildest dream. I doubt that any experience I had ever had up until then could have compared to the excitement I felt at that moment. We had struck pay dirt. Revealed to me and to the others gathered anxiously around the small but incredibly important hole we had dug in that forbidden ground was the top of a chest. It was hard, it was solid, it was very old, and it was real.
The old man had been right. We had been right. There was a treasure, and we had found it. I remember dropping to my knees to scrape away the last of the soil that covered the chest. It was magnificent. It was an old contoured chest with riveted metal bands shaping its top. I couldn't believe it was really happening. I began to dig with my hands, scraping and scooping the dirt from around the chest, looking for the clasp or the lock that held it shut. And suddenly, there it was. I brushed the dirt from the lock so those standing above me could see it. The lock was old and rusted, and it was packed with the soil it had rested in for what must have been a hundred years of hiding. And in its face were three large keyholes. I shouted for someone to give me something to break it open. I was hurriedly past a shovel, and I began to attack that old padlock as though it were guarding the greatest treasures of the universe. It was then that Carmel sounded the alarm. Through my excitement at finding the chest, I still remember her urgent shout telling us that we had been spotted and our father was on his way, headed in our direction. Of any news I could have heard at that moment, that was the worst. To be where we weren't supposed to be was bad enough. To be caught digging holes in the ground was worse. But for anyone under the age of twelve or thirteen, letting an adult find out that we were discovering a treasure would have been unthinkable. With a menacing adult about to discover our secret, we did the only thing we knew how. We began to cover up the chest. At the time, it didn't matter if we had discovered the richest cache of gold and jewels that had ever been found. For the moment, getting rid of the evidence was the only thing that mattered. By the time our father arrived on the scene, all he saw was a three-by-five-foot hole in the ground, about two or three feet deep. Someone, I forget who, blurted out the first words of an instant and incredible story. We told him that we were digging a pond for goldfish. He didn't buy it, but he couldn't figure out what we were really doing either, so he did the only parent-like thing he could do. He stood there and watched over us as we refilled the entire hole. Then he told us that some suitable punishment would be doled out later, and he made us promise that we would never dig on that property again. We promised that we would not. I have forgotten what punishment was meted out. I suppose at the time my head was too full of the possibilities of what that chest contained to worry too much about having to do a few extra chores or going to bed that night without eating dinner. I do remember that I was sure my father had gone easier on us because, in addition to telling him that we were digging a pond for fish, I had added that if he didn't punish me, I would go to a seminary and become a pastor and help people. He had always hoped that I would. And so the chest, whatever it contained, was once again left to rest, safe from the few inspired young children who had nearly unlocked its secrets, hidden from a world that no longer remembered its existence. To this day, not one of the original crew of treasure seekers, now all adults, has gone back to find out what was buried in that hole. It wasn't that we were told not to. As adults, any of us could have gone back at one time or another to find it again, but we never did. Rebecca grew up and raised a fine family of her own. Carmel went on to write romance novels, and Vern passed away. I never did go to a seminary and become the pastor of a quiet little church. I always hoped that my father had forgotten the promise about the same time he forgot the incident that inspired it. All of the treasure hunters have long since moved away from their hometown. For those of us who had almost touched the dream, the story of the treasure is now a story we tell to our children and our grandchildren. Not long ago, I visited that small town where the old wooden chest of unknown contents lies buried in the ground in the center of three tall trees. I flew from my home in another state, 
rented a car at the large city airport, found my way from the expressways of the city to the blacktop roads of the open countryside, and headed off into the afternoon sunshine. It was a day much like the summer day many years earlier, when my friends and I had had our great adventure. When I arrived in the peaceful little town, I drove along the street I had walked so many times to and from school, and found the place where my childhood home had been. The house I had grown up in wasn't there anymore. A new home had taken its place. The cinder road had become a nicely blacktop street. The grove of plum trees was gone. It had been replaced by a row of apartments. No sign of the old haunted house remained. It, too, was gone, and a new three-bedroom home stood in its place. The land around it had been cleared, and the woodsheds and tall dark trees had given way to a well-kept garden, surrounded by a fine wooden fence, the kind you buy at a home center and put up on a Saturday afternoon. But I couldn't help noticing that in the front part of the neatly trimmed lawn there were three tall trees which had survived. I parked my rented car and got out to say hello to the man who was cutting the grass under those trees. The five large stones were gone, and in their place was a gazebo with white latticework trellises for vines. It looked like the sort of place where the man and his wife could sit and enjoy the evening. I did not tell the man who was cutting the grass around the gazebo beneath the three tall trees that about four or five feet under him was an old chest with the rusted three-key lock. After talking to the man for a few minutes, I thanked him for his time, said goodbye, got in my car, and drove away. A few hours later, I was back in the large, crowded city. Then I wound my way along the busy freeways, turned in my rental car at the airport, walked through the boarding chute that put me on an airplane destined for a far-off place, and flew away.